Thank you, choir, and Miriam, and Sarah. Sarah has a uh, CD that I listen to quite often. It is, uh, it's in my car, and, and it's a blessing to me. We have um, a number of those CDs from our choir and so forth, and they, they bless me. Well, today we are, we are remembering those members of First Baptist Church who have passed away during the past year. But what I want us to focus on for a little bit this morning is how can you and I live until we die? It seems to me that there are many people who stop living long before they stop breathing. So how then can we live our lives so that when we come to the end of it, there are not a lot of regrets? I told Linda the other day, I thought of life as being a series of downsizing. It seems to me that whenever we begin, we work hard, and after a while we're able to buy a house and Then we raise our family in that house. We're there for a number of years. And then there comes that time when we decide, well, I don't want to keep the yard up anymore. And so we downsize then to a patio home. And we enjoy the patio home, the neighborhood association, all those amenities that go with it. And we live there for a while. And uh, then we come to the place where we say, well, I need a little assistance in some of my life. And so we downsize again to assisted living. And we live there, we get used to that, having the cafeteria and all those things that go with it. And then after a while, we downsize again and move into one room at the nursing home. And then we make our last move when we downsize into a coffin. Now, no matter what phase you're in, with the exception of the last one, No matter what phase you're in, I believe that life is good as long as one understands that life is about relationships. Now, where we are, not what our condition especially is, but about relationships. And James gives some insight to that. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 4, beginning in verse number 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, as I look at this passage of Scripture, there are different relationships that we have. And one I see 
is that we have a tendency to minimize our neighbor. Now, in verse number 11, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks against the law, judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So we have this tendency to minimize or to criticize other people. In fact, we are just about to end up a political campaign where there has been a billion dollars on both sides criticizing the other. Now, why do we do that? Why are we so committed to criticizing other people? Well, I think the objective is that I might boost myself. In other words, if I criticize you, then I must be superior to you. I build myself up by criticizing someone else. good example of that, I think, is the story in the New Testament of the publican and the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray. And you recall the publican went over in the corner and he knelt, would not even lift his eyes to the Lord. He just humbly prayed. And then the Pharisee was over on the other side and he said, Lord, you are so fortunate to have me. I tithe. I teach a Sunday school class. I sing in the choir on occasion. I might even end up as a deacon someday. Lord, you're so fortunate to have me. And Lord, by the way, I am so glad that I'm not like that fellow over there. You see, we have this tendency to criticize others thinking that by doing so that it builds me up. That if I'm able to tear someone else down, then the result is that I am built up. There are other people who do it simply because they enjoy doing it. Barclay wrote, there are few activities in which the average person finds more delight than this, to tell and listen to the slanderous story, especially about some distinguished person. It is for most people a fascinating activity. Now, if you smile, I'll know that you do that. I know inquiring minds want to know. And so we like to hear all the garbage, all the trash on other people. And so we stand there at the grocery store looking at Inquirer and Star and Globe and those other magazines you told me about. So we stand there looking at those things because we enjoy that. There are some people who criticize others to impress their friends. In other words, they get around some other people and their friends are criticizing someone And they jump in and criticize them too because they want to be a part of the team. And so they just want to impress their friends. There are other people who criticize because they have been hurt and they want to hurt someone else. There are many people who are critical because of the hurt that they carry with them, sometimes for years, and so they take it out on others. Now, here's what James says about that in verse number 11. Do not speak against one another brethren. Speak against literally means to criticize, to judge, to gossip, to backbite, to grumble. The word usually means to talk about a person behind his back when he is not present. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Now, we know it's wrong. That's the reason we disguise it when we do it, or we try to. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but stop me if, uh, if I'm wrong, but 
See, what we're trying to do is that we want to criticize, but we know it's wrong, so we try to disguise it. We know that it's wrong. We know that it's destructive. We know the scripture speaks against it, but we do it and try to make it palatable by disguising it. Look what he says in verse number 11 as he continues. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Now, what's that all about? What is he saying? He who speaks against his brother speaks against the law. He who judges his brother judges the law. What's he saying? Well, when we are criticizing someone or we're speaking against someone, what we are doing is saying that this person has broken the law of God. This person has done something not acceptable to God. Therefore, I am criticizing this person. But he said, in so doing, what you then are doing is breaking a greater law, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when then I criticize someone else or I condemn someone else, the Bible says then actually what I'm doing is criticizing and condemning the law. So in verse number 12, he says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you who judges your neighbor? James condemns such slander, and there are three reasons I think that it could be condemned. One is that when we condemn others, we are playing God. We establish ourselves as God when we condemn other people. I like the movie Rudy, and you might recall in that movie, there was a Catholic priest who said, there are two things I know. One, there is a God. Two, I'm not him. You see, when we condemn others, then we are establishing ourselves as God. And for me to condemn someone else, then I must know all the facts, and I do not. When I condemn someone else, then I must know the motive for their actions, and I do not. George and I was a good friend of mine, governor of Oklahoma some years ago. I remember him talking to me when he was governor, and he said, uh, I don't mind people criticizing my decisions, but I don't like them criticizing my motives because they don't know my motives. Nor do you, nor do I. You see, the problem we have when we are condemning towards other people is that we are establishing ourselves as God. There's another reason that it is wrong. We do so while we ignore our own failures. In Matthew chapter 7, verse number 3, Jesus said, And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. People ask sometimes, is, did God have a sense of humor or is there humor in the Bible? And the answer is yes. It's just that it's Eastern humor and Eastern humor is based on exaggeration. And that is humorous. What Jesus said was a humorous story because it's exaggerated. The picture that he is painting here is of someone who has a tube before sticking out of their eye. And so he's got this two-before sticking out of his eye, and he sees old Kurt over there, and he's maneuvering that two-before around so I can get over and see that speck that's in his eye. You see, that's the problem we have. We are willing to condemn others while we ignore our own failures. And thirdly, it is wrong because it is the opposite of love, 
And the Bible says that we are to love. Now, understand when I'm saying this, I am not talking about discerning between that that is right and that that is wrong. We accept far too many things today saying that we are not to judge. We are not to condemn people, but we are to stand for those things that are right. So first of all, there is this relationship to our neighbor, and we have a tendency to minimize our neighbor so that we can maximize ourselves. Now, verse number 13. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. So we minimize our neighbor to maximize ourselves. What is the objective here? It is to establish ourselves as the sole authority of life. That was the sin of Lucifer, you recall. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, But you said in your heart, speaking of Lucifer, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, folks, that was the sin of Lucifer. He was filled with pride five times. I will. In other words, what he is saying is that I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am going to be the one who determines what I am going to do. That was the sin of the prodigal. You you know the prodigal came to the father and he said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that belongs to me and I'm going to live my own life. I am not going to live under your authority. I'm going to make my own decision. I'm going to go my own way. By the way, I need your money to do it. But give it to me so that I can live my own life, establishing himself as the authority. Isn't that a temptation that we deal with? That we want to be the sole authority of life in our lives. That we make every decision ourselves. And the Bible says that it is presumption. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life shall be like tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, we are presumptuous when we think that we are in control of when. Today or tomorrow, I will go and do such and such. Today or tomorrow. And yet the fact is there are many of you who think that you're in control of the when of your life. Some of you think that you are in control as to when you are going to be saved. Someone cares enough about you that they share the gospel, they tell you about Jesus Christ, they encourage you to become a believer, a follower of Christ. And your response is, well, you know, not right now. One of these days I'm going to do that. Maybe down the road, maybe when I get married, maybe when I have children, maybe when I get past this. Someday I'm going to do it, but not right now. You think that you are in control of when? You think that you're in control of uh, when you're going to retire. But there are a number of people who had planned to retire and their plans changed because of the economy. We even think that we are in control of when we are going to die. You know, if I eat right and I exercise and I go see the doctor and I have my checkups and I eat all that brand that I'm supposed to be eating and all that stuff, shoot, I'm going to live forever. We even think that we are in control of when we are going 
to die. Seneca said, How foolish it is for a man to make plans for his life when not even tomorrow is in his control. We are presumptuous enough to think that we are in control of when. We are presumptuous enough to think that we are in control of where. I go to such and such a city. I wonder how many of you are in Columbia, South Carolina today, but that was not your plan when you were uh, making plans some years ago. It wasn't my plan. I'm glad that the Lord sent me here. I love Columbia, love South Carolina, but it was not my plan. It's just that I had never been to South Carolina before. But we think that we are in control of, of where we're going to go, such and such a city. We think that we're in control of what? I'll go there and make a profit. Well, there's not a lot of profit being made right now, is there? But we have all these plans, thinking that we are in control. I, I, I'm in control of when I'm going to do something. I'm in control of where I'm going to do it. And I'm in control of what I'm going to do. And that is foolishness. Here are the facts in verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. The fact is, James is saying life is complex it is not simple and therefore we are affected by circumstances beyond our control a businessman can have a great business plan but the truth is there are some things that go on in Greece and Portugal and Spain and Italy and other places that are going to affect your business plan you may have a great business plan as to how things are going to turn out in the future but then the government might come in with a new tax structure or new regulations that they put on your business. You have no control over that. So the point that he is making is that life is complex. There are a lot of things in life that we don't control. He says life is complex and life is uncertain. In verse number 14, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. We can't accurately predict the future. When it comes to the future, the truth is most of us are as confused as confused as Columbus was. When he left Spain, he didn't know where he was going. When he got to the New World, he didn't know where he was. And when he went back to Spain, he didn't know where he'd been. And that's sort of the way we are whenever it comes to the future, trying to predict the future. You can't predict what your health is going to be tomorrow. There are many of you who thought you were healthy and then... You went to the doctor or you had a pain or you had an ache or something and you went and discovered that you had an issue that you didn't know you had. You don't know what's going to happen concerning, uh, concerning your health. Paul said outwardly, we are wasting away. And I've been here long enough to see some of y'all waste quite a bit. It's amazing how well I have remained preserved until I see one of those videos and I think, what in the world happened? But it's confirmation of that scripture that we are wasting away. You don't even know if you're going to have a job in six months. You don't know where you're going to be. So the idea that we know what is going to happen in the future, that's foolishness. None of us knows. He says life is uncertain. Life is brief. James says that it's like the morning fog. You know, the morning fog comes out. And then the sun comes and it burns it away. He says that's the way life is. Life is like that. 
He said, it's like the morning fog. It comes out and then the sun shines and it's gone. Isn't that true? I mean, you feel like the morning fog. It's just amazing how, I remember Billy Graham being asked the question one time, said, what is the biggest surprise of life for you? He said, how quickly it goes by, how short it is. And if you're 70 years old, 80 years old, 90 years old, 100 years old, it's amazing how quickly life goes by. So he says, it's like the morning fog. It comes and then it's gone. He says, so you ought not be arrogant. Barclay said, the future is not within the hands of men and no man can arrogantly claim that he has power to decide it. So as I look at relationships here, here's a temptation that we minimize others in order to maximize myself when we need to recognize that God is God and let him have place in our lives. If you're going to have a life that is satisfying, if you're going to have a life that is meaningful, ladies and gentlemen, it will come when you allow God to be God in your life. So what does he say? He says we are to know his will. In verse number 15, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. I suppose the question that I'm asked as much as any is, how does, how does one know God's will? How can I know God's will for my life? And I believe the starting point is that you begin by saying, Lord, I will do your will. Now, here's what we want. We want God to reveal his will, and then we decide if we will do it, and it will never work that way. The reason for that is the Bible says it is impossible to please him apart from faith, so God is always going to put you in a position where you must live by faith. So there has to be that first step on your part when you come to the place where you say, God, I am willing to do your will. When I was struggling with the Lord as to whether or not he wanted me to come as pastor of this church, and I talked with John Vassano about it, and I said, John, I, 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 you know, I, I'm seeking the Lord's will. I, I don't know. And he said, well, Wendell, the starting point is that you have to come to the place where you say yes to God. Yes, I will do your will. Are you there? Are you willing to say, yes, I'll go? Yes, I'll not go. Either way. And I said, John, I, I, I'm, I'm there. I will do whatever God wants me to do. He said, now then, it becomes the responsibility of God to reveal his will to you in a way that you can understand. I believe that's exactly right. Folks, if you want to know God's will for your life, then first of all, be willing to do his will. It is not that God tells you his will and then you decide if you're going to do it. You must first of all come to the place where you are willing to do it and then the Lord will reveal it to you. So we are to know his will that we might do his will. In verse number 17, he says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. So we are to know his will to do his will. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul wrote, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you come to the place... That you say, God, I will do your will. Then God will reveal his will to you in a way that you can understand. And you have taken a position of spiritual maturity. 
And when you take a position of spiritual maturity, it puts you in a place where you do the ministry to which God calls you to do, and then there is satisfaction in your life. The only place where you're going to find real satisfaction in life is when you are in the center of God's will. Sometimes people hear about someone being called to missions or a dangerous place, and they say it's, it's dangerous over there, you ought to reconsider that. It is my belief that the most dangerous place to be is outside God's will. The safest and most satisfying place to be is inside God's will. And I say especially to you young people, I know that you're interested in grades, you're interested in dating, you're interested in the college, you're interested in all these things. I plead with you that you establish a spiritual foundation, that you build your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ and commit yourself to his will. Now let me conclude. To minimize one's neighbor puts oneself in the place of God and is condemned. To maximize one's self is to put one in the place of God, and that is presumption. To recognize God and allow him to be God in your life, that is spiritual maturity. So my question for you today is, what is God's will for your life? More specifically, we are coming to a time of invitation What is God's will for your life? I encourage you to do what you believe to be God's will. Our Father, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Father, we thank you for giving us life. And now, Lord, I pray that we might live it to its fullest. Jesus, you have said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And I pray for these present, those who worship with us by television, that they will live in such a way that they come to the end without regrets as they live within the will of God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing a hymn of invitation. If you're here without Christ, I encourage you to come and trust him. You're looking for a church home. Our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of this family. Stand with me, please, as we stand. They sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do.